Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and this week I talk with Michelle and Matthias Hansen. They are the married co-founders of Geocodio, which is hassle-free geocoding. We're going to talk about bootstrapping into a commoditized space and how they've grown their SaaS app first on the side and later both going full-time over the past six and a half years. It's a great conversation. Before I dive into that, I wanted to make a quick mention. Brad Tenard contacted me. He is at Brad T on Twitter. And he said, hey, I'm in Atlantic Canada and COVID is not terrible up here. So I'm thinking of gathering just a few people for an in-person tech founder, kind of microconf founder type meetup in the late spring or early summer. If you are a tech founder in Atlantic Canada, DM him on Twitter at Brad T. Another reminder that today is the last day to get your nominations in for the SAS Podcast Awards. That's sasspodcastawards.com. And we are trying to recognize the bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped SAS founders that are getting on the mic and educating us every week, helping share their story and their inspiration. So please head to sasspodcastawards.com, nominate your favorites. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Michelle and Matthias Hansen. Michelle and Matthias, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So you are the co-founders of Geocodio, which your H1 reads, hassle-free geocoding, straightforward and easy to use, geocoding, reverse geocoding, and data matching for U.S. and Canadian addresses. For folks who don't know, you can enter an address or you can enter like a latitude longitude and it'll give you back the opposite one. And I, I'm guessing that's probably how the, the service started way back in the day. But at this point, you guys have added integrations to where you will correct misspellings and you have U.S. and Canadian census data, congressional districts, state legislative districts, school districts, time zones, all that kind of stuff. Is that something that I'm, I'm imagining that didn't come on day one and you've built that out all out over the years? Yeah, that's been added slowly how we often describe it is that a computer doesn't understand an address. It only understands the coordinates or geocodes. And so what we do at a very basic level is converting an address into coordinates so a computer can understand it and coordinates into an address so a human can understand it. And then where our niche in the market is, there's a lot of data that is only unlocked by having the coordinates. So as you mentioned, time zones, for example, you can only get that data if you have the coordinates. So you may be using coordinates to make a map online, for example, but you may not even care about maps and you may just want to know the time zone for a particular location. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, a service like Geocodio is is something that, that my co-founder Derek and I, when we were running Drip, we wanted to give people the ability to say, like we had a, an author who was going to go on a book tour and he was going to go to San Francisco and LA and these various cities. And he asked us, is there a way I can go into Drip and query, you know, which of my email subscribers are within 60 miles, you know, or 100 mile radius of San Francisco? And of course, we would have needed either their address or their there, I mean, you know, you can obviously turn an IP address into a quote unquote location, not exact, but it would have probably been good enough for this purpose. And so we did actually look into to services like this. We went, never wound up building that feature out, but that gives folks, you know, if you're listening to this, like one particular use case of why you may want to use a, a geocoding service. And so you guys launched it six and a half years ago in January of, of 2014 as a side project essentially on Hacker News is what I see. My sister producer found that the original Hacker News thread 
which was generally positive. I mean, sometimes those things go really sideways. There was a comment or two about how, because you were saying, hey, Geocodio is, it's aimed at developers and it's a less expensive way to do this. And someone came in kind of a little bit know-it-all comment of like, oh, if you use... I don't remember what service was. It'll be this inexpensive, blah, blah, blah. And pretty quickly, both of you chimed in with with factual data and, and references of like, no, actually, we are less expensive and we don't have restrictions on your data and you don't have to use their maps. You know, you can do with it as you want. And I thought it was a, a pretty elegant interaction. I'm curious, did, did you guys come away from that launch feeling pretty good about the reception? Well, there's definitely a lot of um, constructive feedback in that thread, but also, as you said, a lot of positive comments. And I think the biggest takeaway we had was, whoa, we aren't really the only people with this problem that we want to get solved. We didn't realize how big the potential market would be. And I think this really showed us that there is some potential here. Yeah, I remember we got hundreds of emails from people after that threat. It was just I remember that day just being absolutely wild. Like, you know, I think as everybody does, when you put something on Hacker News, you send it to your friends and, you know, you're like, hey, you know, upvote this. And then if it gets five upvotes and you get 10 people visiting your product, you feel pretty good about it. And so seeing that kind of sit on the front page all day, we were just, <laughs> I mean, it was it was just unbelievable. And and then we got so much feedback from people about Everything from things they wish we did to complaints about our competitors and, and how they were so glad to see something like this. We even had the M&A team from a major product reach out to us because they were unhappy with their geocoding. And of course, I mean, when we launched our, our product really wasn't that great. About to say, <laughs> for context, it, it was a really, really terrible product when we launched it. And it was barely something we could actually use ourselves. Like we would only use it ourselves because we just couldn't afford anything else really, right? But it was it was really not a, a very good product. Like it, it wasn't that, like the data wasn't very high quality or high accuracy and things like that. We've kind of come a long, long, long way since then. Uh, but it was just so cool to see that even despite of a crappy prototype, there's still so much interest in this, right? And I, I think, as you said, Rob, some of those commenters pointed out that with geocoding, yes, the, the accuracy of the locations is important, but what really differentiates us from many other services is that people can use the data without restrictions. They're allowed to store it in their database. There aren't these overly cumbersome caching limitations and requirements about using it with a particular brand of map, public facing only and more expensive pricing if it's private facing only and all of these things. And 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 kind of as developers ourselves, we're like, that's that's annoying and nobody wants to deal with that. And we don't want to deal with that. And that perspective of, of being the customers ourselves is something that we have carried with us the entire time. That's a good perspective. And, and obviously, if you launch into a space like that, that is crowded and is commoditized, to hear that there's that much of a reception, you know, that you really touched on a pain point is is such a good way to get out of the gate. I'm actually surprised to read then, I, again, I have notes from my assistant producer, that you only made $31 in your first month at the gate. I would expect with a reception like that that you would have had more people using it. No, exactly. It was a raving success in our heads, actually. Like, our expectations were so low that what we really wanted to, like... Like our success criteria was basically if we can pay for the virtual service rendered to run the service, if you can pay for that, 
that's like a success. That's that's like the ideal. Um, so the fact that we made, yeah, I think it was around thirty-one dollars. It was enough to cover our two, I guess, like five dollar a month Digital Ocean instances, and that was actually fantastic. But it, it also goes to show, being on Hacker News on the front page for twenty-four hours doesn't mean you're an overnight success. We had a lot of work in front of us, but we had so much firepower, so much enthusiasm to continue working on this. We knew that there was at least something here we could continue iterating on. I, we Period. were so surprised that anyone wanted to pay us that when we launched <laughs> it, we, we we had integrated Stripe, but we hadn't actually, we, so we, we said we would, you know, charge for the first, on the first of the following month for pay-as-you-go usage. So people can just pay for whatever they needed, and then we would just charge them once a month. And so we had integrated Stripe from the beginning, but we were so surprised that anyone wanted to pay us that actually February 1st came and we looked at each other like, uh, we didn't actually like write the, any of the code to actually charge people. Mm-hmm. Like we were genuinely shocked that people wanted to pay us. I've been there with uh, not having billing code. That's such a great MVP way to do it. And so four years later then, the two of you in 2018 both went full time on the product and were able to able to financially afford to do that. You mentioned back in 2018 that you had passed $1 million in all-time revenue. Uh, that was So that would have been over about a four, four-and-a-half-year span. And Michelle, recently on, on your podcast, Software Social, you mentioned that top-line revenue growth through July of this year was 59% growth compared to last year. So obviously, really, really solid growth happening. And to give folks an idea of scale, you have thousands of customers. And I was looking at your homepage some big, big customers here, Amazon, Deloitte, Cushman and Wakefield, Comcast, the AP, all that kind of stuff. So, so fascinating that in a space, you know, I've already said it once, but I think commoditized is the word that comes to mind when I think of geocoding data. It's like, I don't necessarily care if I were looking for geocoding data when we were for Drip. I cared that the company stayed in business and that the data was accurate and that the price was reasonable and the API was easy to work with. But that was kind of it. I didn't care about brand. I didn't care about a lot of other things that one might care about when searching for a product. And given that geocoding really, it's a volume business and it is harder to differentiate. It does not necessarily lend itself to a defensible moat. I think you guys have mentioned that you've done a lot of innovation. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but you've done most of your innovation on pricing and integrations. You want to talk a little about that? Yeah. We sometimes say that geocoding is, is sort of like selling wood into the software market, like just everybody needs it, which creates this really wide market. So you know, our customers are one-person companies and freelance developers to huge companies and in and, and pretty much every industry. And so in that commodity market with limited opportunity for moat, you know, no opportunity for pricing power. I mean, it sounds like a great business to be in, doesn't it? So where we have kind of carved out our space is really focusing on making it easy for people. And that's where the data integrations come into play, where we had past experiences where, you know, for example, if you needed to know someone's congressional district. So let's say that you had a drip customer that was a charity that wanted their supporters to contact Congress about an issue that is important to them. Before Geocodio, in order to figure out which congressperson each volunteer or, or supporter had, first you'd have to hit one API to get the coordinates, then you have to hit another one to get the congressional district, and then you have to hit another one to get 
their actual contact information. You may even have to hit another one to first get the congressperson's name and then another one to get, you know, their contact email or whatever their contact form link is. And then you go off and, you know, integrate that. And so you're hitting four different, three or four different places there. And that creates a lot of complications in terms of just managing the data, gathering all of that data. It's all coming to you in different formats. They may have different terms, different pricing, different restrictions on storing the data, on using the data. And so where we have found our success is in trying to eliminate steps in the process for people and making it easy to get lots of related data that's down the line all in one place. And so you only have to hit one API to not only parse and standardize the addresses, but you can also add the average household income for an area or the school districts or other types of data that you might need for everything from real estate to insurance to simply showing a map. And so that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like it's it's much more useful for a customer who would you know want that information. I'm curious, do they have to pay more for access to it? Because I'm imagining, do you have to pay for that data? Or are you actually going out and actively scraping to get that data? Because it seems like if there's a cost to you that you would almost have to pass that on to your customer, like a feature, I'm thinking like feature gating, right? It's like, if you just want addresses, that's it's X amount per month. But if you want congressional districts, then it's, is it, a, is it an adder per check? Or are you able to offer it just as, a, as one big bundle? Yeah, so for digital data points, we do indeed uh, charge additionally for those. And the biggest thing in our end is additional data storage costs and and processing costs. Yeah, Yeah. so with the data, one of the most important parts of of our service, like one of the cornerstones is the lack of restrictions on how people use the data. We don't want to be standing over our customer's shoulders telling them how they can and can't use the data. So what that means is that we only integrate publicly available data sources. So we've actually had quite a few people over the years come to us wanting us to resell their data. And we simply have to decline those because one of the most important pieces of our service is that you can do whatever you want with the data. And that's one of the great things about using publicly available data. Now, it may seem counterintuitive that you can charge for that, but a lot of that data is in extremely difficult to use formats that are only available if you have other sort of doorways to the data in addition to the coordinates. And how we charge for that is the basic level is that we call everything a lookup. So for example, one address to coordinate conversion is a lookup. But then if you want to add the time zone, that's an additional lookup. If you want to add the census identifier, so for example, in your drip example from earlier where the customer wanted to know who was in around San Francisco and who was around Minneapolis, they could add the census identifiers, which that category of data append adds something called the metropolitan statistical area, which is basically the broader metro area and does that radiusing for you. And so all of those things count as an additional lookup. So for example, if someone had 100 addresses and they wanted five different data appends for them, that will actually increase the number of lookups. That'll actually be 600 lookups. Which is nice because you're adding value to your customers, but you also are charging for that value. And so you have now differentiated yourself from other geocoding services while also essentially charging more, which is you know a great goal of every SaaS. Yeah, and the great thing about it is, yes, we can charge for that, and also we can charge nothing for it. We have a freemium model, and that means that, you know, if students or people who simply don't have a lot of data that they're working with, they can get that data that they might need 
And as long as they only have, you know, 500 addresses or whatnot, they don't actually have to pay for it. But if it's a huge company that needs, you know, let's say, for example, they need household income and demographics and, and other pieces of data about 300 million addresses in the country, then they will be paying a lot more. So I feel like I know the answer to this next question, but, uh, but I want to ask it anyway. How did you know to do all these integrations? Like what prompted you to integrate time zones, school districts, state legislative, congressional legislative? Were, were these customer requests or was there some other way that you figured out your product roadmap? Yeah, we talked to our customers. And were you proactive by going out to them? Was it a mix of people writing in, requesting? Were you also reaching out saying, what should we build next? So it was a combination. So we mentioned that that first Hacker News thread, there was a ton of feedback on that. Some of it negative, mostly positive. And we got tons of emails from people saying, hey, like, it'd be awesome if you guys could do this or you could do that. And so that kind of planted the seed of, of talking to people and, and the value of, of talking to customers. And we were also learning about the space ourselves. You know, neither one of us did our undergrad in geographic information systems. Like we very much come at this from a developer's perspective rather than a geographer's perspective. And so when our customers came to us early on with asks, we would always ask them, oh, why do you need that? Because we genuinely didn't know, you know, and we also had experiences from our own work showing us the value of reducing the number of API calls or, or places you have to get data from. And then, you know, I think as I grew as a, as a product manager myself and, and as we worked more in the business, really started deeply talking to customers, not just waiting for them to come to us with requests, but sitting down with them, understanding their complete process knowing every single point along the way and, and what those frustrations were and where they were spending a lot of time or a lot of money or they had to use a vendor and they didn't like them for some reason. All of those, all of those things contributed to an ever-evolving roadmap that is informed by our customers. And is that how you decided to build your HIPAA-compliant tier or your pricing, your HIPAA product, I guess? And, and I bring it up because... On your software social podcast, you had a really good episode talking about kind of telling the story of how you built it and then no one, I believe no one signed up for it, but the costs of keeping it running were relatively substantial, not inconsequential, I'll say, and you kind of mothballed it for a while. And then suddenly a bunch of people out of nowhere wanted to, to use it. Yeah, exactly. We kept hearing over and over again, is your service HIPAA compliant? Can we use this for patient data and things like that? I remember seeing that for the first time. I was like, I don't even know what HIPAA is or means or covers or anything like that. After hearing this one too many times, and also Michelle's doing a lot of custom interviews and hearing this over and over again from customers, we decided to sit down and build out this HIPAA product. And it's probably the biggest undertaking at that time. We had to really rethink our whole product from scratch and make sure everything was secure to much higher standards than we originally built Geocodia for, and we really poured a lot of time and, and money into this, and we launched it, and then poof, nothing, right? <laughs> this is exactly what, what you fear and also kind of what you expect sometimes. And um, indeed, we uh, since we had to set this up completely separately with separate infrastructure, there's a lot of upfront cost to us, not just the development cost, but also the infrastructure costs of keeping this running. We basically did not have a single sign up for I don't even know how long. And we ended up almost completely shutting down this product. But for some reason, we somehow decided to keep it alive. Probably 
just because of all the effort we put into this. Like, it was hard to like kill it completely, right? So we, we decided to keep it on for a little bit longer. And seemingly out of nowhere, we, we have been seeing a lot of growth on this product this year in particular. Really happy that we kept it alive. And we actually do a lot of things now to give it a lot of love and attention that it deserves at this point. To that support launch this. was so hard. <laughs> yeah. The number one rule of bootstrapping is to always make money. We don't have the luxury of launching something and running in the red for six months or a year. I think it was maybe only a month after we launched and, and, and we learned the hard way that the sales cycle is so much longer when you're dealing with companies that have robust legal departments, which is the case for pretty much any organization dealing with sensitive data like that. And so we basically had to, you know, shut off the pay-as-you-go version of the product and only sort of kept it alive on our unlimited tier, which basically we only incur the costs when we actually have a customer. And so we had the landing page up only mm -hmm. for I don't know how many months. And, you know, our sole marketing and, and, and sales channel is SEO. We don't do any outbound sales. So... We continued working on the landing page a little bit. I think we were a little bit dispirited, quite frankly, though, for a while. And and then eventually we very, very slowly started getting customers. But I don't think we actually like really believed in it, in it being a significant part of our business or, you know, the capability to be a significant part of our business until you know, maybe middle of last year. And then, yeah, this this year really taken off. I think the big gotcha with, with launching that product, something we perhaps hadn't fully understood until after we launched was... Geocodio was originally a, like a super classic sort of low-touch SaaS product, self-sign-up and stuff like that. And as Michelle kind of mentioned, we jumped into all this stuff with long sales cycles when we eventually when eventually things started picking up. And we suddenly had to do like like enterprise sales, super high-touch, which is, well, first of all, it's not very scalable for us to go through the process. And it's not something that was something we were used to or have a lot of experience with and things like that. That was definitely an uphill battle to start with. Yeah, for an example, earlier this year or this summer, we signed a Fortune 100 customer for that product. And I started talking to them in May of last year. Yeah, and that's the thing that so many founders don't realize is the moment you, you start talking procurement or POs and manual invoicing in terms of net 15 or net 30, you are talking months and months of sales cycle and you're talking you should be charging between 10 and 100 times what you charge everyone else purely to put up with the hassle or the or the time and potentially legal costs, you know, because they often want custom terms that you have to sign. And that instantly becomes this enterprise tier that should be way, way, way more expensive. We talk about this a lot in Tiny Seed in the first month or two. Most SaaS apps from people who don't really have this experience dealing with these larger companies, most SaaS apps are underpriced. And so if you have tiers that are in the, as a random app, if you have 50 to two or $300 as most of your tiers, if a Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 company comes in there, are going to go put you through this, you know, the procurement ringer, you should be charging between 30K and 100K a year, right? It really needs to be there. And you should be often charging up front. They want to pay annual, which is a great cash influx for a bootstrap company. In addition, a lot of the companies I see that are 
getting really strong traction. They have what I, well, I'm calling this dual funnel. So like a low touch funnel is much like probably what Geocodio you know, was when you first launched it, where you come, it's a low price point, people can sign up with a credit card, you don't have to talk to them and, and they just go. And the high touch funnel, of course, is, is your HIPAA, your HIPAA tier, right? But having both of those is like a superpower with SaaS growth because you can get a lot of people using it on the low end and you can get that constant influx and constant kind of, I'd say, slower growth perhaps if you're landing lower price people. But when the enterprises come through, that's when you see the really big months of, of growth hit because, you're again, you're, you should be signing this 20 to 30 to 100K a year contract and that gives you this big bump. But if you rely solely on the large ones, of course, they're great businesses built on the, on the enterprise sales. If you rely solely on them, then you tend to have this a lot of time invested doing stuff that most of us don't want to do, I'll say, as makers, as founders, as, as customer researchers. Like, that's not our strong suit. It's not necessarily what we want to be doing is spending time talking to procurement and legal. Anyways, those two things add together to, to give really nice growth. And I want to come back to something that Matthias said. He said, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you know, you started getting these these HIPAA customers. Where are they coming from? Because it, nobody comes out of nowhere. Like, are they finding, is it just simple as, as Google search and search engines? Or have you been doing other marketing to, to promote Geocodio? We basically don't do a lot of other marketing. We occasionally sponsor conferences, but mostly those are just Laravel conferences that our friends run. It's very SEO driven. And, and you know, to what you were saying about low touch and high SaaS in combination, it's been really fascinating for us seeing how those interplay and how they feed one another. You know, we will very often find that somebody on a team within a large company will be Googling for geocoding or, or, or whatnot. They start using us on the free tier or, you know, they get their boss's P card and they, they do a little bit of usage. And then anywhere from a day to a month to a couple, a year later, they might say, like, hey, we want to get an annual contract. And what's so amazing, especially about having freemium SaaS in that, is that they can try out the product and see if it's a fit for them before you ever even talk to them. And so you don't have to spend all of this time with a huge sales team doing demos, doing cold calling, cold emailing, all of those things. We don't do any of that because customers can figure out for themselves whether the product is right for them and then they simply tell us when they want to switch to annual. And I also find that doing those negotiations where they always want to customize things in the contracts, right? And there are sometimes you know, difficult scenarios in those negotiations. But I find that having a point of contact at those companies that has already been using our product is already totally sold on it and is a huge advocate for the product within the company can make those conversations with, with legal or with compliance or whatnot, a lot easier because they're doing some of that negotiation for us. They're advocating for us. Yeah. And time and time again, that, that's helpful. But it's, it's always so fascinating to me seeing the interplay of them. You know, we in Slack, we have a feed whenever someone cancels or deletes their account. And one quirk about our product is if someone has an organizational account, they have to delete their old account to be re-added because... We never thought about that from the beginning. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see the comments in that. And so often it's, oh, my company got an account, so I'm just deleting this one so I can reassociate it. 
That's fascinating. Yeah, that this really lines up with what several of the the B2B SaaS companies that are growing like B2C companies that have super viral growth are companies like Slack, where they have the bottom-up approach, right? That's been a big thing where a small team of three or four starts using it, and then another team of 10, and then a team of 20, and suddenly the IT department's like, wait, we need single sign-on, we want to manage it, we want annual contract, we want paid version, and and they want to bring it under the corporate umbrella, and that's in essence what is working for them. And, And a big part of that is a really inexpensive or a free tier, frankly, because that allows people to use it. And, and once they're in it, you have the champion, much like you're saying. I was looking at an app. I don't remember, I have no idea what it was, but they had, a, it was a SaaS app. They had a free tier and then their pricing started at $1,000 a month and up. And it was like, they know their customers because they know that people want to try for free, get used to it. And if it's valuable, it was worth a thousand a month. I mean, it was some type of enterprise type tool. I don't, again, I don't recall what it was, but that's when you know that someone has thought it through and not just said, well, I'm going to have free. And then, you know, I think, isn't it usual that you do like a 50 and a hundred and a $200 plan? You know, and it's kind of the, the basics. I mean, someone has, has really refined and honed it. And that is an obvious advantage, both for companies like Slack and even for bootstrap SaaS apps like yourself. Yeah, I would say from a pure like economics and finance perspective, I think a lot of things we're doing will be a lot simpler, but it's a bunch of plans and we can sort of predict our MRR and things like that. Having this pay-as-you-go tier means that basically the revenue from each customer can vary like crazy depending on, on, on their usage. But I feel like that's also a sort of cornerstone of foundational part of the company and how we started out. We really truly believe that anybody should be able to afford this And one of the reasons why we founded this company was because we had this issue where using another very popular geocoding provider, geocode 2,500 addresses per day. And if you needed, say, 3,000 addresses per day, we had to do like an annual $50,000 a year contract or something crazy like that. There was nothing in between. And having this pay-as-you-go tier for us means that, oh, you can just pay an extra five bucks a month or whatever for that additional data and not have to like lock yourself into a high high price tier that is just so important and something we'll we, we promised everybody who's asking like no we'll never get rid of this we just we can't it's just so important that there's room for the the little guys and and uh, and the big ones too right it's, it's funny sometimes when i'm i'm talking to people i'm surprised by how often i'll hear someone say oh you know we're only using you guys for like twenty dollars a month like you know i feel so bad like is there a way we can pay you more? Which is always like kind of a funny thing. And, or, you know, oh, you know, my boss is really cheap. Like, and I'm like, that's fine. Like, it's totally fine. Like some people only need $20 a month worth of usage, but maybe they'll go on to a company someday where they actually need $1,000 a month of usage or they need it for free. Like you you just never know. And and it's not just a relationship with a company. It's a relationship with a customer and, and, and with a person. And we just so strongly believe that if, if you meet them where they are, that that will be beneficial for for everyone and may not be always financially. And we're totally OK with that. And that's the beauty of of bootstrapping or frankly, just being in control of your company and not having to optimize for growth to the extent that 
but you can't have that attitude. And it's if that's what makes you happy as a founder and you're happy with your growth and you're happy with the way you run your business, that's why we start companies, you know, is so we can be in control of how we treat our vendors, our customers, our investors, if we have them, and, you know, our team members as well. And I think that's, I think, a control thing that I think a lot of folks don't remember, you know, or perhaps they forget as they do it. Well, guys, we are hitting time here. I want to really thank you guys for taking time to uh, chat with me today about Geocodio and your story and all the things you've been up to. If folks want to keep up with you, Michelle, you release every week on this software social podcast with Colleen Schnettler. And on Twitter, you are a prolific tweeter at MJW Hansen with an E, E-N, and Matthias, you're, you're Matthias Hansen, also with an E, but we're going to put both those in the show notes because spelling Matthias is not perhaps as phonetic as, as one might think. So thanks to you guys again for uh, coming on Startups with the rest of us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Rob, for having us. Thanks again to Michelle and Matthias. Really appreciate them taking the time to have that conversation with me. I hope you got a lot of value, maybe a little bit of inspiration, some strategies, tactics for yourself. 